The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, the Venice Biennale, Van Gogh's self-portraits in London and Salvador Dali and Sigmund Freud in Vienna. I talked to Cecilia Alemani, the artistic director of the Venice Biennale for Art, which opens in April, about her show The Milk of Dreams. For this episode's Work of the Week, Martin Bailey visits the Courtauld Gallery in London, where 15 of Van Gogh's self-portrait paintings and a sheet of drawings have been gathered for a once-in-a-generation show. He talks to the curator Karen Sayre about the self-portrait with bandaged ear. And at the Belvedere in Vienna, a new exhibition explores the relationship between Salvador Dali and Sigmund Freud. I talked to Stephanie Auer from the museum about Dali's obsession with the father of psychoanalysis. Before all that, a new series of our sister podcast, A Brush With, has just begun. In the podcast, I talk to leading artists in depth about the influences and cultural experiences that shape their life and work. The first episode of 2022, A Brush With, Dianita Singh, is out now, and A Brush With, Charles Ray, follows on Wednesday the 9th of February. Do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear them and to explore the archive of more than 30 conversations. Now, details of the Venice Biennale for Art were announced this week by its curator, Cecilia Alemani. It's called The Milk of Dreams and features more than 200 artists from 58 countries, including many late artists whose importance in 20th century art is only now being reckoned with, many of them women. In fact, it's the first ever Biennale show in which the majority of artists are women. I spoke to Cecilia, who was in the Biennale offices right next to the Grand Canal in Venice, about the show. Cecilia, the exhibition at the heart of the Biennale is called The Milk of Dreams. Tell us about the source for that. Yes, the title of the show is The Milk of Dreams, which is a title that I uh, took from a children's book by Leonora Carrington, uh, a book that talks about uh, a world where creatures that are hybrid and in constant metamorphosis can be transformed and become uh, someone or something else. I wanted to use this uh, atmosphere and this uh, fluidity to create an exhibition that talks about metamorphosis of the bodies and of the definitions of humanities. And there are three sections, aren't there, in the exhibition? So effectively, you've organised it according to three sections, but I imagine they're fairly loose. But do you want to take us through those three sections? Yes. So the, the show is structured around three themes or fil rouge. They're really not sections. They're more like the souls of the exhibitions, which you will sort of encounter in many different ways, uh, in a recurring way. Um, the first one is the metamorphosis of the body and the definition of humanity. And in this particular theme, but also in general, the exhibition looks very much at the post-human and post-human thought and philosophy. It really is the sort of backbone of this entire show. Uh, So thinking about uh, challenging the sort of 
uh, enlightenment and renaissance idea of the man at the center of the world and uh, kind of poking our finger to that. And that's also something that, of course, like everything else in the show, really comes not just from my interest in these uh, authors like Rosie Braidotti and Donna Haraway and so forth, but very much in, um, from the artists themselves. And that's why also the show includes a wide majority of uh, women artists and gender nonconforming artists. Uh, the second topic is our relationship between our bodies and technologies. This is, of course, a very broad theme, but one that became quite urgent during the pandemic. And so thinking of our relationship before the pandemic with technology, maybe and technological optimism, no? the, the idea that technology could, and science, of course, and medicine could improve and perfect our bodies so that we could live more and more and more and longer and longer and longer. And on the other side, the fear of a total machine takeover with the uh, AI. This sort of controversial relationship with technology or polarizing relationship has been kind of exacerbated and almost turned upside down during the pandemic in which, of course, uh, sadly and tragically, we've uh, realized how our bodies are extremely fragile and mortal and how, on the other side, in the very moment of uh, this pandemic, we cannot be physically together. And the only way to be together is through technology, through the screen and the mediation of the many different devices that we carry with us. So, in a way, technology brought us together, but also separated us. The last sort of uh, bucket or fil rouge is the relationship between uh, humans and individuals and the earth. Uh, this is a, another very broad theme and in a way the extension of uh, the post-human thought, in particular the post-anthropocentric um, thinking about trying to imagine and having a different kind of relationships with what surrounds us, with the planet, with nature, one that is not based on a sort of capitalist impulse, uh, one that is extractivist and of exploitation, but one that is instead of a symbiosis, collaboration, non-hierarchical between ourselves and other beings. And uh, in this case, not just Rosie Braidotti often talks about the idea of becoming Earth, so this constant movement, but also someone like um, Silvia Federici, who is another very important philosopher who has written uh, in our catalog, uh, talks very often about this idea of the enchantment. And so trying to find a relationship that is also quite natural with what's around us. The Milk of Dreams, which I've read, one of the key things about it is it, it's a playful thing. It was created for Leonora Carrington's children on the directly on the walls of that space in Mexico and so it seems to me that that's true I mean there's very serious intent in the show but there's a playfulness at the heart of it too I think there is playfulness. I think the show is also very serious. Another thing that I think is part of that book is that it's also a bit creepy, no? It's a bit scary. <laughs> I read it to my son, who is uh, six, and he was like, Mom, I don't think this is a children's book. <laughs> um, but I think those uh, atmospheres, which are so, so present also in her paintings and artworks, are very much diffused also in the show. There is a lot of irony and humor, but also there is some seriousness. I 
I tried not to be, especially when it comes to the themes of the, you know, the body and, and nature and larger themes of ecology, I tried to have a more uh, personal and sort of uh, introspective approach to these themes instead of, you know, just, you know, portraying the end of the world, which is probably very much happening. But <laughs> One of the things that you, you've got in the show are these so-called time capsules. And you said of the first one, which is actually full of surrealist artists, including Leonora Carrington, but also people like Leonor Fini and um, Remedios Faro, and these, these wonderful artists who have not had a presence in the Biennale up to now. And it seems, of course, these are about themes, but also it's about revisiting the canon, isn't it? And reinterpreting the art of the past in the context of the present. Yeah, very much so. I think that in the five uh, thematic and historical capsules, I try to do a more specific job of bringing to the fore voices of artists that have been for too long excluded by the uh, historical canon. Of course, I have no ambition of rewriting the history. There have been plenty of exhibitions uh, like Fantastic Women or Radical Women that have done already this very important academic job. Uh, these capsules, they work more for analogies and rhymes, and uh, that's also why they bring together uh, artists from the international surrealism, but also the Harlem Renaissance, but also futurism. So I've tried to create this sort of constellation of meanings that go a little bit beyond just the, the big art history. But in those presentations, too, you see a lot of humor and irony exactly uh, making fun of the kind of cliche, uh, very often sexist or stereotypical visions of women in those big modernist uh, uh, movement. Um, and tell us about the selection, because, you know, it was really clear in the press conference yesterday, as you were taking us through the sort of just an idea of some of the artists in the show, just how many women were in a show. Do you have a rough percentage? Because it seemed about 90% to us at the art newspaper. Yeah, it's it's a great number. I I don't have an exact number because also I, we haven't asked necessarily, uh, you know, gender or identification to artists. <laughs> but uh, I would say it's between 80 and 90. Yes. But the historical capsules are uniquely focused on women artists. And that was very intentional um, because I also looked at themes that historically have been very much connected to men. And so like the programmatic art, you know, it was such an important movement in Italy. And there is maybe one artist that is known that is female. The same when you think about the idea of the cyborg and Dada. It's, it's, so I try to kind of show the other side of the thing. But for the rest of the show, it, you know, it came very fluid and very natural. Um, I started working with lots of women. I've always worked with lots of women artists. Uh, and then when I wanted to invite a man, I invited a man. So <laughs> I didn't sit down and had like a percentage that I, of course, I wanted to do a show that featured a vast majority of women because I also, especially because this is an international podcast, I want to remind people that this show happens in Italy. And in Italy, uh, many of these discussions are still in medieval time. <laughs> uh, so, or like, they feel very medieval. So, of course, the show is international, but uh, I hope it will have also a symbolic value in Italy in a place where for the first 100 years of this prestigious institution, 
the percentage of women artists in the show was less than 10%. And in the last 20 years, it was around 30%. And so, and again, I, it's, it, numbers don't matter, but it is important to also reflect uh, on the past <laughs> because it is just not a reflection of the world that we live in. I wanted to look also at, there's some lovely subplots, I think, in the show, in the sense that you've got a literary angle that runs through different aspects of the show. On the one hand, there's one of the capsules looks at concrete poetry, but also, for instance, there's a section which also looks at Ursula Le Guin. That, to me, is really fascinating, that there's, there are literary roots into this show as well as artistic legacies. Yeah, definitely. And so the exhibitions certainly include a vast majority of visual artists, both contemporary and uh, historical, but it was important to me also uh, to include voices that were not necessarily traditionally associated with art history, uh, and that you see very much in the capsules, where included maybe dancers and cultural producers and thinkers, and also people that were medium, or someone like Aletta Jacobs, who was definitely not an artist, she was a doctor, uh, but also thinking about the symbolic importance of people and individuals that can contribute also to the narration of the exhibition. And of course, Legrand's theory of the carry bag theory of fiction is sort of central to your whole thesis, in a sense. It's, it's part of a section, but it seems to me you've talked about in, in the text that you wrote about symbiosis, solidarity and sisterhood. And that connects directly to that sort of carry bag theory, isn't it? Because it, it's, it's about bags as opposed to weapons. Yeah, I have to confess, I, I knew her as a, as a sci-fi writer, but I did not know this little essay. And when I read it, I was just so struck because it is also so, you know, it's very short, but so clear, so to the point. And it just immediately sparked a number of visual connection to me. And so uh, I think her imprint will be very visible in this capsule, but also in many of the works surrounding it. So again, to me, the capsules are almost like the roots of the show from which uh, a lot of the contemporary artworks uh, are growing out of. I wanted to ask about the sort of very physicality of the show. So again, when you were making the presentation yesterday, it was very clear that lots of the works were very much about a physical engagement with the viewer. Um, even when you're dealing with the concept of cyborgs, for instance, there's a lot of sculpture. Yes, you've got Lynn Hirschman Leeson, who's a, one of the great digital artists of history, but also you do have a lot of uh, works in that section like Marguerite Humeur who deal with that in a very physical, sculptural way. So it seemed to me that that was an abiding concern. You didn't want too many screens in this exhibition. Yeah, I think it's a, it's, it is a very physical uh, exhibition. Of course, you know, I think also the experience of being in front of a f film or a video is also quite physical. But to me, it's not like, especially when I talk about technology, I do not mean that there will be, you know, VR, AR stuff. I don't think there is not even one, uh, right. as far as I know. Uh, somebody yesterday asked me about NFT. Again, as far as I know, there is none, but you never know. They might hide it somewhere. <laughs> but I think, you know, there will be video about that. But also I thought, you know, it's not just the purview of uh, video artists. There are lots of uh, uh, painters or sculptors that also tackle those themes, so... That's great. And, and you've worked with former Phantasma on the capsules, haven't you? And they're obviously, they're artists, designers, um, they sort of straddle all sorts of media. Why did you want to work with them? So I, I worked with them already 
a couple of years ago in Venice when we did this show about the history of the Venice Biennale, which is called uh, Le Muse Inquieted, the Disquieted Muses. Uh, I think they are extremely talented. They've worked with me and with our team for the entire installation of the show, so not just the capsules, but they do have a very uh, kind of hands-on approach to this uh, to these presentations. I decided not to work with an architect, but with exhibition designers compared to other biennials. Part of me because <laughs> my main job is I work at the High Line, so I also work already on a piece of architecture, so I've never really dealt with the exhibition design in that sense. You know, it's uh, that my space is given. So I, I don't know, I couldn't really think of anyone. I don't know how necessary to work with an architect. So mm-hmm. I right. thought that especially for the structure of the show, they could really be helping me uh, in a more authorial way in these presentations because they need a lot of care. You know, some of these rooms contain maybe 30 artists and maybe 80 artworks. So there is a, such an attention to detail, which of course is also in the main show, but it's a different level. So um, I think they, they're extremely talented and I've enjoyed very much working with them. It seems like the capsules are almost little moments in exhibition history. I noticed that you said that the, the surrealist based one will be sort of based on those kind of wonderful photographs, I think, of, of, of those surrealist exhibitions from history. Also, you, you've got there's a bit of reference to Biennale's past there with a reference to, to an earlier Biennale in a different capsule. So you're looking at the history of exhibitions within the structure of the show, right? Yeah, I think that was definitely one of the inspirations. Of course, you know, the capsules about metamorphosis, which we also call it the capsule of surrealism, also looked back of the very famous surrealist exhibitions which were so dense and, and rich yeah. in exhibition kind of the first time that you hear talk about exhibition design in the 30s but uh, we also looked a lot back to previous exhibitions each capsule has very much a different soul and different uh, aspects so uh, for instance the one about language was also inspired by thinking about you know the the desk where when you were kids uh, like I don't know how you call them but they were this kind of slightly blue uh, in Italy and like the capsule of the cyber will have lots of uh, metallic reflections, a very, very cold uh, light, uh, uh, the one of the, which we internally call the one of the vessel, or will have um, much softer, very uh, egg-like uh, appearances. So they do feel very different and you will feel like transported in a different time zone or uh, culture or atmosphere. You said that when you were piecing together the show, it was born fundamentally from conversations with artists. In terms of those conversations, yes, it was about the kind of nature of their work and the themes, I would imagine. But also, were you talking about lots of these artists that are in the capsules? Were you asking them to think about them, for instance? No, because it was um, not necessarily that the two went parallel, but the idea of the capsules really evolved. So, you know, again, the genesis of my show is a bit bizarre because the pace of it has changed so many times. You know, it started really strong and then all of a sudden we had to take a break and I did also the show about the archive. So, in a way, it felt very organic, but in a way it was also a completely different research. So, while I kept steady on the research on the contemporary artists and I have met, I don't know how many hundreds and thousands of people via Zoom, 
For the historical ones, uh, it was more like an academic research uh, and, you know, uh, lots of uh, archive research, books, uh, which was amazing because I, I missed that so much. And I was so happy not to talk to someone in Zoom, at least for those <laughs> capsules. And then I think I told most of the artists that there would be these uh, uh, presentations, but I did not want them to feel that they had to respond to the fact that there, that in a show there is a surrealist artist. That I didn't. So they work completely independently. They most of them, I think they know about this, but I did not share like a list or, or too many details. At the tail end of your text, you talk about the pandemic and you talk about how this show in a way is a response, even though you started to formulate your ideas, this show necessarily had to be a response. And it's in a way the kind of show that you kind of had to make, it seems to me, as a result of the events of the last couple of years. Tell me about that. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, to me, the relationship with what's happening in the world in these two years has been so, of course, not just challenging and dramatic seeing what happened, but also the impossibility of having a clear sense of the future, even in the most banal things and logistical things, has been the most challenging Part, you know, so when I remember when we announced the title, which I think was last June, I would have never thought to be in this position. Still now, where you don't find the paper for the catalog, you cannot find scaffolding poles. The situation with the global shipping is absolutely a nightmare. I know, I mean, I, nobody here, and this is an institution that makes hundreds of projects every year. Nobody would have thought about that. So. In a way, the pandemic is everywhere, both in the sort of logistical structure and very much in the reflection of the artworks. I think, you know, to me, when it comes to the content uh, and when it comes to the content of the actual artworks, you will see a very personal, introspective approach to the pandemic. There is nothing that screams, uh, you know, we lived in a pandemic, uh, X million people died. Even the artists that are the most, quote-unquote, political, I think went back to a language that is much more intimistic and personal, still to convey very important issues, but it's certainly not an exhibition that will scream that. And I think it's not just a curatorial choice, but it's really a choice of artists that, like all of us, found themselves for two years in this bubble of suspension and kind of a hiatus in which it's impossible not just to plan, but also to, to portray what's happening in the world. Well, Cecilia, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and very good luck when you come to install it all. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> the Venice Biennale opens to the public on the 23rd of April and continues to the 27th of November. You can find the full list of artists as well as all the details about the national pavilions and collateral exhibitions at labiennale.org. To hear my interview with Leonora Carrington's biographer, Joanna Moorhead, about the Milk of Dreams, listen to our podcast from the 18th of June 2021. And we'll be reporting from the Venice Biennale when it opens in April on this podcast.
Coming up, we hear about Van Gogh's self-portrait with bandaged ear and about Salvador Dali's meeting with Sigmund Freud. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. More than 1,600 works of art created by more than 400 artists are claimed to have been secretly traded using shell companies and tax havens, according to the latest revelations from the Pandora Papers. The data was revealed by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, or ICIJ, which is working with media outlets to sift through 11.9 million financial documents that were leaked from an unidentified source in 2021. It's the latest analysis from the investigation directly relating to the art world. As Rhea Pryor writes, the art in question includes more than a dozen works by Banksy, bought by the London financier Maurizio Fabris, beginning in 2009 via an offshore trust in New Zealand, which at the time offered anonymity to owners of such entities. A legal representative for Fabris told the ICIJ that he declared all his offshore holdings to the British authorities and paid taxes in the UK, where he resides. The latest UK gender pay gap reporting shows that there's still a salary chasm at the three biggest auction houses. The method of pay reporting is admittedly somewhat crude, but the findings show little progress since reporting began in 2018. As Annie Shaw reports, at Bonhams, women earned a paltry 48 pence for every pound that men made in 2021, with no female employees in the top three of four pay brackets at the time of reporting in April 2020. At Sotheby's, women earned 75 pence for every pound men took home and at Christie's, which has already filed its reporting for 2021-22, to the gap was similar. And yet London's non-profit institutions put the commercial art world to shame. The Tate pays men and women the same, the Victoria and Albert Museum pays women 14.1% more, and at the Royal Academy of Arts, women earn 2% more than men. And finally, the dissident artist Badu Chow, dubbed the Chinese Banksy, is launching a protest NFT collection criticising the Chinese government's record on human rights ahead of the Winter Olympics in Beijing, which open today. As Gareth Harris reports, the minting of the NFTs, titled Beijing 2022 Olympics, happened directly on a dedicated platform. A statement on the NFT site says that the five works depict the Chinese government's oppression of the Tibetan people, the Uyghur genocide, the dismantling of democracy in Hong Kong, the regime's omnipresent surveillance systems and the lack of transparency surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. You can read all these stories and much more at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iOS and Android, which you can download from the App Store or Google Play. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This February, Christie's presents The Collector, an online auction featuring a curated selection of European and English furniture, works of art, silver, ceramics, glass, clocks and gold boxes from the 16th to the 20th century. Open for bidding until the 10th of February, this edition of The Collector showcases art and objects of timeless beauty and endurance. Highlights include examples from distinguished English and European private collections and works by celebrated makers such as Chippendale, Store and Tomir. Explore this edit of furniture and works of fine craftsmanship in the exhibition at Christie's King Street. Entry is free and it's open to all until the 10th of February. Find out more on christies.com. 
Welcome back. Now, at the Courtauld Gallery in London this week, 15 of the 35 painted self-portraits by Vincent van Gogh went on show in a small but remarkable exhibition. The show is the first on van Gogh's self-portraits in London for 60 years, and the first ever to look at his paintings of himself from across his career. The exhibition is curated by Karen Sayre, and she was joined in the exhibition by the art newspaper's resident van Gogh expert, Martin Bailey, who's contributed an essay for the exhibition catalogue. We're here at the newly refurbished Courtauld Gallery in London in two of the exhibition galleries. And the show opens to the public today and the first visitors have only just entered a few minutes ago. And there is an air of excitement because the critics who came in earlier this week have almost all given it five-star reviews, which is most unusual. And this is the first exhibition ever of Van Gogh's self-portraits from his entire career, that is, covering his period in Paris and in Provence. And we've just walked through the smaller of the two rooms, uh, which shows the earlier works, and we're now in the main room uh, with his finest paintings. Um, it is an amazing sight as we look around. Uh, we've got the face of Vincent um, on all four walls. I've never seen this before. As you were installing the exhibition and it came together and you opened the crates, because that's quite an exciting moment when the crates are rolled into the room and there's a bit of a ceremony um, and they're opened and inspected and hung. And what did you feel when you actually hanging the pictures? You would have, could have imagined it before because it had been carefully planned, but what was it actually like? You never get tired of it. I had seen these works individually in their own respective collections, and I thought I had an idea of what it would, it would look like, but once the actual works are here, we actually had these mock-ups, these posters um, all around, so we already had a sense of, of being surrounded by Vincent's face as we were uh, replacing the, the posters uh, with, the, with the actual works. But to see them um, now... Uh, uh, all together, and the power of, um, of, of the works is, is really quite, quite startling. And the next question, obviously, is how you got the loans, because it is incredibly difficult to get the loans of Van Gogh paintings. Um, they're so popular, and most of them are for, from museums which only have one work, and they're quite a draw. They don't want to disappoint their visitors. The Van Gogh Museum has a substantial number, and you've borrowed five, which is very generous of them, but they couldn't be expected to lend all of them. And there were three paintings in private collections, and I presume you fought very hard for them, uh, but uh, didn't get them. So it is quite a struggle to get the loans, and each one uh, you have to put forward justification as why you deserve to have it. How did you manage it? I think we have two advantages. The first is, of course, that the Courtauld is the home of one of the most important self-portraits, Vincent van Gogh's self-portrait with bandaged ear. And so the lenders knew that we had already done a lot of research on, on van Gogh and that their own works would be in, you know, in a setting with very high-quality uh, works. The other uh, thing, I think, in our favor was that the Courtauld really has um, a history and a reputation now for doing these very small focused shows that are highly researched and therefore when lenders 
trust us with their works. They know that we're really going to pay attention to, to each of their works and that they will learn something new. And indeed, as we were installing, often it's curators or conservators that accompany the works. As we were installing, they were already noticing uh, new things by placing their works next to others. Could you give an example, because that's rather intriguing, of what was realized when they were being installed? I think one of the things was the very last work that we installed, this wonderful self-portrait with a straw hat from the Detroit Institute of Art. And as you say, this is really one of their most uh, important works, and they they were very reluctant to, to lend it, but uh, they were very generous because they knew that such an exhibition was really never going to happen again. And in the show, you see it next to another self-portrait with a straw hat from the Van Gogh Museum. And you can see that actually the Detroit work is much smaller and the the sides of the hat have been kind of cut off. And they always assumed that that is just how Van Gogh had had done it. But when you compare it to... um, to, to the one in, in uh, the Van Gogh Museum, you can see that actually there the Detroit portrait has been cut down. And so you can, you can imagine slightly the life of the work. Yes. Now, that's a very good example. We're actually standing directly underneath, very close to the Courtauld self-portrait with bandaged deer. And when I see it looking around with the other paintings in this room, one's struck by how different it is. How would you describe the differences between your self-portrait and the vast majority of the others? Well, I think there's several differences. First of all, on a very basic level, he is shaven, uh, so he doesn't have a beard in in this one, whereas in all of the other self-portraits, his red beard is really flaming with, with color, which is really quite remarkable. In ours, his flesh is a little bit green, and it's because he had just left the hospital where he had been treated following the mutilation of his left ear. Of course, the reason why he's shaven in this case is that um, his ear was very, very badly mutilated, um, so he was shaven for medical reasons on this occasion. Now, it's a fascinating painting because uh, it really does show a setting, and I'd like to go through the various elements in the picture. Um, I guess in the background, the most striking thing is what appears to be a Japanese print. Um, Karen, can you tell us a bit about the print? It's actually a, a print that was in Van Gogh's collection, um, and it, it belonged to uh, to the Courtauld, uh, but unfortunately it was stolen in the in the 1980s. But it's a print that uh, was very special to to him, and he had a huge collection of Japanese prints. In this one, you can see a few uh, women in kimonos on the banks of a river, and in the background there uh, there's Mount Fuji, a very recognizable triangle. And it's not a very old print. It was only made in the 1870s and probably made for for export, for this burgeoning market in Europe, for this type of Japanese art. And the other element at the back of the picture is the easel uh, with the canvas on it. And it's always intrigued me. It's sort of slightly pinkish color now, and there's some lines in the background. And um, it hasn't been conclusively identified what... Van Gogh was supposed to be painting at that time. Now, I was hoping that the latest scientific techniques might sort of enable us to look a little bit below the surface of the picture and work out what it is. What is your theory, Karen? 
What I find interesting is that there's something at all. In a way, he could have had just a blank canvas, but indeed it's very intriguing that he just gives us this ghost, this shadow. I personally think that it is a stem with a few leaves, and so it's this. It's a very uh, basic uh, still life. I don't think there's a full composition underneath that he then um, kind of hid in a way by by adding some some white over it. I think he just wanted to give the sense of him being back at work, but not in a very clear way. Well, I'm wondering what sort of flowers they are, if they're flowers. Um, I don't think they're sunflowers. Could they be irises? That was another of his favorites. Indeed, that's possible. They're, yes, the stem looks really long and, and thin and very much um, in, in that way. We'll keep trying, but I think this may remain a mystery to, uh, to discover what that is exactly. And the other two elements are the architecture. And this may seem a rather trivial question, but we're actually interested in Van Gogh's life at the Yellow House and what it was like and what the setup is. Now, there's a door just showing on the right-hand side of the picture in blue. And um, interestingly enough, uh, there's also a door in another painting, uh, the picture at the National Gallery in London of Van Gogh's chair. And that's in, also in the exhibition um, because, in a way, it's a self-portrait. It's the, the empty chair of Vincent. Now, when the pictures were being hung, uh, were you able to think about what the door was? And the intriguing question is, where did the door lead to? Yes, it was fascinating to... Act. These are the first two works that we hung, actually, our own work and the, the National Galleries. And so it was wonderful to be able to, to see them uh, together. They're not hung next to each other, but you can see them across the room in the, in the exhibition. And it's really striking that... Um, I don't think I'd ever noticed that it was, it's exactly the same angle of, um, of view. I personally think that it's an internal door. In our painting the uh, self-portrait with bandaged ear, it's slightly uh, ajar, I think, to give some perspective and some depth. But often uh, people have said, oh, he's, uh, he's wearing a coat, he's getting ready to go out. But I think it would be very strange to paint yourself with the front door slightly ajar. I think it's the internal door between the studio on the ground floor and the kitchen that was in, in the back Unfortunately, the yellow house no longer exists, and so we're unable to, um, to know for sure. Yes, the yellow house was bombed during the Second World War, and unfortunately it wasn't rebuilt. It could easily have been. But the final thing was, and I want to, this may sound superficial, but the color uh, of the wall behind, it's actually yellow. Now, it was called the yellow house by Vincent because the exterior was in yellow. But in four letters, he writes that the interior was whitewashed. So why has he done a yellow wall? It's so interesting. Um, a few colors from Vincent's works have faded and changed, but not this. And um, as you say, it's really quite, quite striking. He always said that he used color uh, in a slightly arbitrary way, he says, to give more forcefulness. And so I wonder if he wanted this greeny yellow to provide a backdrop for the beautiful reds of the Japanese print. And whenever we see Van Gogh's work, we think of his life and his extraordinary life, and that is really epitomized by this self-portrait. I mean, let's think of the moment when it was painted. It was actually done uh, a week after he'd left hospital, three weeks after he'd really severely mutilated his ear. I mean, this raises really intriguing questions. First of all, 
he's turned to show the damaged side of his his head and the bandage is very prominent and obviously part of the picture very much intended and secondly why has he done a self-portrait was this a moment when one would think of doing a self-portrait he could have done a still life he did other still lives at this period he could have done a portrait of a friend it was January but he could have gone outside and painted some landscapes and yet he did this quite large painting this self-portrait Karen, why do you think he did it at this particular moment? You're right that it's really, really remarkable. And the fact that this is uh, even more ambitious for him, um, as we were saying, because it is the only one with a recognizable setting. So he's really placing himself back in the yellow house. Um, so some really grounding himself. I think very often um, his self-portraits have been uniformly said to kind of have a psychological introspection. But this is very much one where you get a sense that he's trying probably to come to terms with what happened by showing his bandage so prominently, uh, but also trying to regain his sense of, of identity. And he's placing himself both in this, in this special place for him and also between um, the canvas, so his own work, and then on the other side, this Japanese print that we mentioned, that was a really important source of inspiration for him. Now, let's step back a bit and look around the room where we are now at all the faces which are staring at us because the exhibition provides a unique opportunity to actually look at the self-portraits properly. I mean, we see them in reproductions in books all the time and they often appear the same size so we don't get an idea of the scale. And with Van Gogh's um, thick impasto paint and his style, um, it's really important to get up close and look at the works um, in the flesh, if you like. And it's quite different from these now popular immersive experiences which seem to be popping up all over the world in various cities where we see the images blown up enormous sizes because that's not what the artist intended. So when we look around the room, what does it tell us about the self-portraits and why did Vincent do so many? It's a fascinating thing. He was really one of the most prolific self-portraitists in history. He did 35, and in the show, we wanted to really bring together a representative group. He only made them over the last three and a half years of his life, and you can really see through the show all of the different styles that he experimented with as he was finding his own artistic voice. And But these works are incredibly immersive, I hope much more than anything that's blown up. You could actually come really close and see all of the feathery brushstrokes and the wonderful colors that he used. Karen, that's very kind. Thank you very much for taking us around this fantastic show. Thank you. Van Gogh's Self-Portraits is at the Courtauld Gallery in London until the 8th of May. Martin Bailey writes a weekly blog on Van Gogh, published every Friday on theartnewspaper.com and the app. And his latest of many books on Vincent is Van Gogh's Finale, Over and the Artist's Rise to Fame, published by Francis Lincoln and priced $40 or £25. And finally, the Belvedere Museum in Vienna has just opened the exhibition Dali Freud, an obsession, exploring the huge effect of the psychoanalyst and neurologist Sigmund Freud's writings on the art and life of the surrealist Salvador Dali. 
Stephanie Auer is the assistant curator on the Belvedere show and she told me about the Spaniard's fanatical engagement with Freud, his attempts to meet him in Vienna and what happened when they finally encountered each other in London. Stephanie, how did Dali come across Sigmund Freud? Dali came across Sigmund Freud's writings when he was studying in Madrid in the 1920s. He was living at the Residencia de Estudiantes. It's a student home and in an interesting way, an English student home. They were not only sleeping there, but it was a place of cultural interchange and um, intellectuals and scientists from all over Europe came there to do talks and that's where Salvador Dali not only got into contact with surrealism but also with Sigmund Freud's writings in 1926. So was it through surrealism that he came across Freud or was there an interest even before he he knew about the surrealists? That's the fascinating things about this period in his life when he was in Madrid that there were so many influences at the same time. One knows that he probably read Freud's writings in 1926 because um, the writings were published in Spanish from 22 until right. 34, his complete works. And we know that the interpretation of dreams was released in 1923. But one can approximately say that in 1926, he read his works. And what he said was that it was one of the most important experiences of his lifetime. And was it the interpretation of dreams that he particularly latched onto in those early readings of Freud? It was the interpretation of dreams. He mentioned himself in his autobiography, The Secret Life of Salvador Dali, which he published when he was only 37 years old. And it was actually this writing um, which he was mostly inspired of, the interpretation of dreams, yes. One has to admit, we know of some which were of deep importance of him, like Jensen's book about Gradiva, and Freud was referring to this writing in 1907. He was interpreting um, the paranoia and the dreams of the young archaeologist who was the main protagonist in this writing, and Dali relates to this work specifically in one of his paintings in the early 30s. And to what extent can you see Dali's paintings as an illustration of Freud's ideas? One has to say what happened to Dali when he read Freud's theories was that he got some understanding of his psychological problems. He was haunted by anxieties, fears, strange sexual obsessions, when he was a child, when he was adolescent, until his early adulthood. And when he read Freud, he found some um, explanations for these problems, which was a, a relief for him. And one is to say, in a, in a second step, he developed a method to put his neurosis, his psychological problems, his deeply frightening feelings into a pictorial language. But he was not illustrating Freud in a way that one could say he was illustrating his theories or his concepts or when you find a specific motive in a painting you cannot relate it to a specific um, book or a specific theory 
but it always has to be thought through Dali, through his experiences, through his biography. He highly interpreted in a personal way. Indeed he did. And some of those things are repetitive motifs in his work, aren't they? I mean, for instance, there's the figure of the great masturbator who is this sort of presence throughout Dali's work and it takes all sorts of soft forms throughout the work and everything else. So tell us about that and other sort of forms of interpretation of Freud's theories that appear in the work. For example, one can relate to the motif of the grasshopper. One knows that he was um, terrified by grasshoppers from his early childhood. And then he probably understood the mechanisms of these fears he developed through Freud and is specifically related to this topic in his paintings. Actually, he added, for example, in his work Le Jeu Lugubre, a grasshopper, a perfect example of a grasshopper. He often relates to his um, obsession with masturbation. For example, in one of his paintings, I can refer to Le Jules Lugubre. It's one of the main works in this period when the influence of Freud in Adiers um, manifests itself in his paintings in a very obvious way. For example, he adds a, a huge hand, which refers to his obsession of masturbation. You can always find motives relating to his fear of impotence or the the figure of his father and his fear of castration. And you can always see these, these two poles in his working too. On the one hand side, desire. And on the other hand, you can always find shame and guilt in his paintings too. And these feelings are closely related to his father. He suffered from an authorian father and his father always stood for these sexual taboos and mostly questions related to to moral issues and when Dali was obsessed by these feelings he had for his sister or something like that his close relationship to his sister um, he felt probably um, these feelings of guilt too and just to relate to the sister again this is one of the examples he probably found um, explanations for these feelings in, in Freud's um, writings too, so that it was normal for an adolescent maybe to feel sexually aroused by even his sister and uh, problems and thoughts which caused problems or, or fears and anxieties in the young painter. You referred to Le Lugubre or Le Lugubrious Game. That's such a crucial picture in the history of Dali's relationship with surrealism, isn't it? Because it's 1929, so it's in his first flourishing surrealist language, but also it contains shit, it contains feces, which caused a lot of consternation. It's a key Freudian symbol, you know, and yet it would cause consternation for Breton. And so it's, what, what's interesting about that painting is it's, on the one hand, it's utterly surrealist and utterly Freudian and yet at the same time it's this bone of contention in the surrealist group so already the seeds of Dali's complex relationship with the surrealist is right there in the work. What is really fascinating about the fact is that some surrealists like Paul Eloire and his wife Gala Eloire they in the summer when Dali was working on Le Jeu Lugubre they even came to Caracas and um, he was in a state of mental excitement. He was laughing all the time. He had problems at this time and they came and wanted to talk to him about his paintings because they were somehow afraid that this might be manifestations of neuropathological 
issues, mainly right. manifestations of neuropathological issues. And for Breton, you're right, these catalogical motifs, he, he had problems with it. In Dali's relationship with the surrealists, he overstepped their borders too. Uh, for example, Louis Aragon, if I remember right, had even problems with his masturbation orgies he was writing about. And one might not think that the surrealists had problems with these elements in his works, but they, they actually did. And then they had Gala talk to him. And that is the point when Gala and Dali fell in love with each other. Indeed, a really enormous shift in his life at that time. I wanted to ask you about the physiological aspects of Freud's scientific work, because one of the things that one hears less about with Freud was that he was a neurologist. And in the exhibition, you also have aspects of scientific studies by Ramon y Cajal, the great Spanish scientist, and it turns out a, a wonderful artist and illustrator of the nervous system. Tell me about Dali's connection to Ramon y Cajal. Dali was living at the Residencia de Estudiantes when he was studying in Madrid, and there was a strong interaction between the arts and the science at this place. And a doctor, a scientist, his name was Ramon y Cajal, he was a neurologist. He had his laboratory there and he was studying there. And so Dali and even his um, colleagues like Federico Garcia Lorca, they came into contact with um, Ramon y Cajal's drawings. And one can see that in the period of 1926-27, at the same time when they were experiencing Freud's writings, um, got in touch with psychoanalysis, they also explored um, the neurological system of the body of human beings in a histological way through the work of Ramon y Cajal. And one can find traces um, in a formal way. In their drawings, they adopted the structures of neurological cells, of um, nerve cells in their drawings, not only Dali, but also um, Federico Garcia Lorca or even Yves Tanguy. We know um, Ramon y Cajal was very famous and his um, writings, his studies were, were published too. So even Yves Tanguy might have gotten into contact through his books or publications and one can even find the traces of these cells and histological structures in Tanguy's paintings. I wanted to explore a bit Dali's obsession with Freud and with the obsession with meeting Freud because he went to Vienna to try to meet him, didn't he? In his autobiography, he writes about his intention to meet Freud. He even came to Vienna. He says that not only once, but three times he tried to visit um, Freud in Vienna. Uh, we actually know that he came here specifically um, in one year, in April 1937, because it was published by a Viennese newspaper that the Parisian painter Salvador Dali, uh, he was quite famous at this time, arrived in Vienna. And he describes um, trying to get in touch with Freud in vivid colors in his autobiography. He, he tried to go to his home in Berggasse, but he wasn't on a term, and they told him that he was... Um, relaxing at the countryside because he was very sick by then. And then he 
went away really disappointed, um, had some Sachertorte and visited the Palicianin, where by then Vermeer's painting Malkunst was. And what I like best is that he said he was even talking to Freud in his mind, all the things he wanted to tell him. And Freud even visited him in his room, hiding behind the curtains. Yes, it's, it's a funny story. It is indeed. And then, of course, Dali and Freud did eventually meet, but it was in London in 1938 that they met. Tell us about that meeting. Freud had to go to exile in 1938, and he managed to do so, and he managed to install himself in London, in Ellsworthy Road, um, his first London home. And Dali had a donor, Edward James. He was a donor of the Surrealists, and... Um, he got in contact with Stefan Zweig, the Austrian writer, who by then was already living in exile too. And we have got lots of letters where Stefan Zweig is trying to convince um, Sigmund Freud to meet the artist, the one and only artist who admires him most and that he has a great influence on him and he has to meet him. It's, it, they are wonderfully written, one has to read them. And in the end, um, Zweig can convince Freud to meet Dali. And what Dali wanted to do is he wanted Freud to um, appreciate his critical paranoid theory, but Freud was not that interested in it. He even took a painting with him, uh, which belonged to Edward James by then. And Freud was interested in his painting, but Dali even wanted to read Freud his publication about his theory and he was really disappointed that he didn't show the interest he expected him to do. But the next day we know that Freud wrote a letter to Stefan Zweig and he admitted that he had not been interested in the surreal movement by then but that the artist um, changed his opinion and it might be interesting at least a little bit to explore how such a painting develops that's right and he described Dali's ingenious fanatical eyes didn't he so he he obviously Dali we know he was he was this extraordinary character and he obviously made a deep impression on Freud as a man he less so as an intellectual which was the way that Dali wanted to communicate with Freud but Freud was interested in Dali the the person much more than he was perhaps in his theories right that's right. He was fascinated by his passion, by the painter, by the fanatic young painter. That's what Edward James um, told a friend, that he whispered into one's ear, he's such a fanatic. If all the Spaniards look like that, there's no wonder there's war there. It's really funny to read about the meeting from the different point of views. And it's such a funny phrase in his letter too that he says... Until the meeting with Dali, I was obviously convinced that the surrealists are idiots, um, like 95% like alcohol. So, yeah. And what's really interesting in this context is, and what one has to know, that he was not interested in contemporary art by then. That's what he even wrote to um, Breton in the latter, at the beginning of the 1930s, he said, you always tell me that you are so so fond of my writings, that I'm, I'm your patron, I'm, I'm, I'm your hero, 
But honestly, I have no clue what you surrealists want in your art and in your works. But maybe the problem is that I'm so far away from contemporary art and that I'm, yes, uh, the things I'm dealing with is something very different. But do you think, because he refers to Dali's skill, doesn't he, Freud, when he writes the letter. So do you think that's what cut through to a certain degree because he loved the old masters, so he saw in Dali's painting ability a certain link to the history of art? I'm convinced that he was impressed by his way of painting, by adoring his um, metamorphosis of Narcissus, the painting he brought him. And um, as he adored the old masters, that's what he appreciated in his arts. And what um, Dali said about Freud is he was always interested in the unconscious parts in the painting. That is what he was exploring or trying to explore in the old masters, in Leonardo da Vinci's works. But when he looked at a surrealist painting, he did not have to look for the unconscious. One could see it in their paintings, so it was no miracle anymore for him. There was nothing to explore. Now, is it right that Dali made sketches of Freud when he was there? Do they exist? Do we know what they look like? There are several sketches which were done in the period of 1937-1938. One can see that he was quite obsessed with Freud. And one knows that he did a drawing of Freud while he was visiting him. And one even knows of a letter now of Stefan Zweig that um, Dali asked him to show the painting to Freud, but he did not want to do so because he thought that in the painting one could see that Freud was um, a sick man and that he was going to die soon, so he never showed the portrait to Freud at all. But in classic Dali style, didn't he say that he saw the image of Freud in a snail? When Freud was moving from Vienna to London, he stopped in Paris. Um, he was accompanied at night by his student, Marie Bonaparte. And one photograph of Freud exists when he was arriving in Paris. And it was all over the newspapers. And Dali describes in his memories that he was sitting, I think it was somewhere in France, eating snails. And he saw a guy reading the newspaper. And in that moment, he was relating Freud's brain to the, the snail. And then he found out the relation between his genius and, and the form of the snail. And there's even a drawing where he relates to it. Well, it is a fascinating relationship. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for telling us about it. It was a pleasure. Dali Freud, an obsession, is at the Belvedere Museum in Vienna until the 29th of May. And that's all for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson, Henrietta Bentel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, to Chilia, Martin and Karen and Stephanie. And thank you for joining us. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.